This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Well, 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 let's take a look at who's now a confirmed speaker at CPAC 2022. It is, of course, none other than former Congresswoman and 2020 presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. But hang on a second. Back in 2019, when I pointed out all of the red flags, her supporters told me that I was smearing her and that it couldn't possibly be that I was being honest and trying to assess whether or not she was qualified for the left, but that I was, you know, a DNC op. I mean, look, this is something that I think a lot of us saw as an inevitability, especially given her trajectory recently. But I just, because I'm a petty person, let's look at some of the threads on Reddit that talked about the way that I was smearing Tulsi Gabbard. One Redditor said, Progressive media like TYT, Secular Talk, and Humanist Report, blacking out Tulsi Gabbard is a serious issue. And they also pointed out, only Jimmy Dore, Nico, and Kim Iverson are covering Tulsi Gabbard. Hmm, interesting. Very, very interesting. What's the uh, common thread with all of these folks? They're now basically right-wingers. Interesting, interesting. I also tweeted about how delusional it was to think that Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard were secretly working together in 2020, as some Tulsi sycophants suggested, because they were running against each other. They weren't working with each other. They were doing the opposite. So in response to me pointing this out, this person says, the humanist report has completely lost it. Okay, interesting. Mike, Humanist Report suggested that Tulsi endorsed Bernie in 2016 merely to earn name recognition. His mask has come off. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Reading this is so delicious now. Oh, my God. It feels so good. Oh, oh, love it. Love it so much. Love it. Now, let me be clear. Putting aside my pettiness and kind of pointing out how correct I was, I have to say that I don't necessarily believe that Tulsi Gabbard was always conservative. I, I think that Tulsi Gabbard is just genuinely a grifter and she will do and say anything to get ahead. So let's remember where Tulsi Gabbard started off. She was a member of the Democratic Party establishment. She worked with the DNC. She was one of the rising stars within the Democratic Party. But in 2016, she likely saw an opportunity. She saw that Bernie Sanders had a lot of support, right? And so by removing herself from the Democratic Party establishment's wing and endorsing Bernie Sanders that set her up. She could either be his VP in the event he were able to get the nomination in 2016, and if he failed, then she could set herself up for a future presidential run as the uh, heir to Bernie Sanders' throne, and she ended up running in 2020. But the problem is that the left was too savvy, and they recognized a lot of the flaws with her. They recognized some more reactionary tendencies of Tulsi Gabbard, and she just couldn't find much support among the left. So now she decided to try to pander more to the right-wing reactionaries, and it seems like they're welcoming her with open arms, and they don't view her previous, you know, pandering to progressives as red flags. 
and the way that the left viewed her pandering to right-wing reactionaries as red flags. Because the right-wingers on Fox News, they tune in and they hear her say these things and they're just going to clap like, like seals. They're not going to question it. They're not going to scrutinize everything that she says. But with the left, you know, they're much more savvy. We acknowledge weird things, you know, when, when she... Uh, votes against BDS, for example, and she starts talking about how getting rid of private insurance is uh, antithetical to freedom, something of that nature. We acknowledge these things. So it's a lot easier to be a grifter on the right than it is to be on the left because you're dealing with people who aren't very bright. So I think that honestly, her right-wing grift is going to lead to more success. Will it actually lead to her being, I don't know, the Republican Party's presidential nominee in 2024? It's really hard to say, but you know, it's certainly going to elevate her. If she isn't going to become a Republican president, then perhaps she gets a show at Fox News. Either way, you know, this is the, I think, logical conclusion of her grift. I don't believe that Tulsi Gabbard has any core ideological beliefs. I think she's just an opportunist to her core. And if she finds a crowd that loves her, she's going to pander to that crowd. I feel like whatever she says is just an attempt to get ahead. And I kind of feel like that's been proven now, even in 2016, when she endorsed Bernie Sanders. It was absolutely blasphemy to point this out, but I think she was probably just doing that to get clout, progressive clout. And now that she lost the progressive clout because she shifted too far to the right in her presidential run, well, now she's just a full-blown right-winger speaking at CPAC. And they don't invite you to speak at CPAC unless you are indeed a conservative, but I guarantee there's gonna be some people who think that they're on the left that will say, oh, well, yeah, she's speaking at CPAC to challenge their beliefs or some shit like that. Like, you know somebody's gonna say it. But Tulsi Gabbard is a right-winger, at least seemingly so. Again, don't really think she has any core political beliefs. She'll say and do anything. She's a political chameleon, very similar to Hillary Clinton, although she'll jump across the ideological spectrum if it benefits her career. So yeah, we all kind of saw this coming. And um, to all of the people who said that I was a DNC shill or a sellout or a neo-lib or just a prick for criticizing Tulsi Gabbard back in 2020 and pointing out her very obvious flaws and some red flags that I saw, well, um, I guess now maybe you should be a little bit more introspective and acknowledge when you are simping for someone. And I'll accept your apology, but I'm um, not going to pander to you. Uh, this is also very educational for me. I've learned to not try to go out of my way to be fair to people when I know that they're frauds, right? So going forward, I will not be handling people who I know are frauds with kid gloves because people are a little bit, you know, apprehensive about accepting any criticisms. I'm just going to say what I know is true because, you know, there's a lot of grifters in politics, so there's no point in beating around the bush. I'm just going to call it like I say, even Andrew Yang. I criticized Andrew Yang and took hell for it, and now what is he doing? He's hawking fucking cryptocurrency as a means of, uh, you know, ameliorating poverty. I mean, look, when you see the red flags, point them out. Point them out, and don't be shy to do so, because there's a lot of people who want to take advantage of people uh, who care about politics. And so acknowledge who's the real deal and who's pandering. I'll leave that there. So last week, NYPD News tweeted out something and then they quickly deleted it after realizing it was a bad idea. After people told them tweeting this was a pretty bad look. Thankfully, somebody had screenshotted what they put out there into the universe that they deliberately thought people should know about. 
And this is what they tweeted. After receiving numerous larceny complaints in the Bronx, officers from NYPD's 44th Precinct recently arrested 12 individuals following an enforcement initiative targeting shoplifters. The arrests may led to the closure of 23 warrants and the recovery of $1,800 worth of merchandise. And of course, the merchandise in question is essential items like cold medicine, diapers, laundry detergent, baby formula, soap, diaper wipes, and other essential things. Now let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves, why in particular would anyone steal these items? These are essential items. So perhaps there's some underlying issue that is leading to people being desperate enough to shoplift diapers and baby wipes and soap. It's poverty, obviously. So they confiscated these stolen items and they're bragging about it as if they, you know, cracked some massive criminal case. These are people who would not steal likely if they weren't so desperate. When you get to the point where you're stealing basic items, essential items like soap and diapers or bread, something of that nature, groceries, that says more about society itself than the people who are doing the shoplifting. And AOC pointed this out saying, when I talk about violent conditions, this is what I mean. But hey, it's much easier to frame people who steal baby formula and medicine as monsters to be jailed than acknowledge our politics and economic priorities create conditions where people steal baby formula to survive. Child tax credit expired December 31st, and it was many people's lifeline to feed and clothe their kids. Politicians let it expire overnight with a shrug, but now want to feed into the sensation around crime acting like shoplifting has nothing to do with their actions wild yeah now she's exactly correct about this now i don't know what the response was to this tweet from republicans if they even acknowledged it but you know it's nice to have a politician who's willing to say this because we know exactly what the inevitable response will be from right-wingers and even some neoliberal democrats how could you say this you're basically condoning theft People don't steal essential items if they don't have to. They know that there is an inherent risk. And there's a reporter from The Hill who says that two of the people arrested for this, um, they're both living in a homeless shelter. One of them is a woman in her 60s. So she's likely stealing for somebody else so that way they don't get into trouble because she knows how much they need it. This is sad. To, to let people get to this point where they have to steal. That is a failure of our society. That shows how ruthless our late-stage capitalist dystopia is. Now, there's a couple of tweets that really um, show exactly why our priorities as a culture are so messed up. Joshua Potash writes, seeing the NYPD tweet about getting stolen diapers, formula, and baby food off our streets, then seeing that Eric Adams wants to cut every department budget except the NYPD is a good summary of how we fund police instead of basic human needs. And Alec Correct Sanis writes, the two images that best describe the budget priorities of the U.S. police bureaucracy, Alabama cops celebrating a fun quilt they made from the signs of unhoused people begging for money, and NYPD bragging about executing 23 warrants to seize shoplifted diapers. And to stop for a moment and look at this so-called quilt, this is how cops view poverty. This is what they think of the unhoused. They think it's funny. This is what they focus on. Rather than going after violent criminals or people in power who are committing financial crimes, this is who they're focusing on. 
you know, they, they say that the uh, police are there to protect and serve, and that's correct, but just not you. They're there to protect and serve capital, protect and serve property of elites. Um, now, one thing that Congress could have done, as AOC alluded to, is extend the child tax credit, and they did not do that. And as a result, well, we've seen a rise in poverty, and that's that's leading to this. So as Common Dreams explains, as Common Dreams reported earlier February, child poverty spiked by 41% in the U.S. in January, the first month since July 2021 that eligible families didn't receive the expanded child tax credit since all 50 Senate Republicans and corporate Democratic Senator Joe Manchin allowed the popular $300 monthly benefit to lapse. At least 3.7 million children have been plunged into poverty. Now, this doesn't even take into account the expiration of the moratorium on evictions, the limited number of survival checks that Americans got compared to other developed countries, you know, the um, hazard pay that workers were required to get at the beginning of the pandemic when we actually claimed that we valued the lives of essential workers. I mean, if the Senate just expanded the child tax credit for another year or at least at the very minimum, Throughout the duration of the pandemic, until COVID reached endemic status, that would have made a difference. It wouldn't have been the end-all be-all, but it would have made a meaningful difference, but they didn't do that. We're choosing instead to prioritize the criminalization of poverty. So when people talk about defunding the police, you know, you can argue about the efficacy of that slogan and whether or not it's politically toxic. The substance of that slogan is really important the need to actually reallocate resources in cities into fighting poverty itself rather than fighting the impoverished is very important because rather than you know criminalizing homelessness if we provided housing to the unhoused rather than criminalizing people who commit theft and shoplift if we provided food and resources to these people you understand the difference that that would make but in our ruthless late-stage capitalist society, we don't prioritize that. We don't care about people. It's every person for themselves. And if you, you know, get left behind, if you become desperate, then that's your own fault. It's just, it's really, it's sickening, it's gross, but it's entirely what you can expect when your government just refuses to do the bare minimum to protect its citizens. Well, as you all know, yesterday things took a turn for the worst in Ukraine when Russian President Vladimir Putin decided to drastically escalate tensions by ordering the Russian military to conduct, quote, peacekeeping operations in Donetsk and Luhansk after signing decrees recognizing both areas in Ukraine purportedly as sovereign states. Now, the peacekeeping operation is a very flimsy justification for an invasion. It's bullshit, and anyone with a brain can see right through what he's doing there now i was wrong on this issue i i genuinely didn't really know how to process the situation i i didn't rule out an invasion given what vladimir putin did in crimea back in 2014. having said that though when you see constant posturing from the russian military when they constantly increase and decrease the number of troops on the ukraine border when you see the ukraine president president say that this invasion isn't as imminent as u.s intelligence is suggesting you know i, I can't help but think 
Is this as serious? Is American media overstating the threat simply at the behest of the military-industrial complex and the State Department? It, it's hard to say because I, I'm very skeptical of anything that the State Department says. But regardless of what led to this point, regardless of what people have said, Russia is the clear aggressor here. And what Vladimir Putin did is an overt act of aggression, and it destabilizes the entire region and potentially the world, depending on how bad things get. Now, in response, President Biden has announced sanctions on Russia. This is the first set of sanctions. And he stated that he will impose more sanctions in the event Russia continues its aggression. Uh, but here's what President Biden said today. So today, I'm announcing the first tranche of sanctions to impose costs on Russia in response to their actions yesterday. These have been closely coordinated with our allies and partners and will continue to escalate sanctions if Russia escalates. We're implementing full blocking sanctions on two large Russian financial institutions, VEB and their military bank. We're implementing comprehensive sanctions on Russian sovereign debt. That means we've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European markets either. Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. Because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. So when it comes to how I want countries to respond to aggression, really the goal here is always to make sure that the response is proportional and used specifically to disincentivize further aggression from an, another country, not instigate further conflict. And I think that Biden's response here basically hits that mark. In my opinion, I think that his response was measured and reasonable, which is actually surprising to me given how tough his administration has talked. But, you know, I hope that Biden continues to reject the advice of warmongers because I think that a lot of people are going to call him weak. House Republicans have tweeted about how weak he is and how his response here is just, you know, not good. At least that's the implication. But you have to reject all of that and try to opt for a peaceful solution. I mean, a peaceful diplomatic solution at this point seems like a pipe dream given what Russia did. But the fact that Biden isn't actually trying to further antagonize them and is simply trying to disincentivize more aggression is, I think, what he should be doing as a responsible world leader. Although I will say it is President Joe Biden and given his hawkish past, I mean, he may change. It just kind of depends. But at least for now, I think that this targeted set of sanctions at, uh, you know, Russian oligarchs, elites, the uh, Nord Stream pipeline, I think that this is the right move. And it's reasonable to say if Russia continues, we will respond with more sanctions. I think that that is indeed reasonable, at least for now. But this situation is changing a lot. And my position will always be how do we get away from war? How do we de-escalate? That's the position that I'm coming from. And I think that's a fairly common position that a lot of people are approaching this situation uh, from. Now, what I do want to share, rather than really sharing my own commentary, because this issue is incredibly complicated, I do want to share what others have to say about this. So the uh, Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations Security Council had a really compelling response to Russia's aggression. Kenya and almost every African country was birthed by the ending of empire. Our borders were not of our own drawing. They were drawn in the distant colonial metropoles of London, Paris, and Lisbon, 
with no regard for the ancient nations that they cleaved apart. Today, across the border of every single African country live our countrymen with whom we share deep historical, cultural, and linguistic bonds. At independence, had we chosen to pursue states on the basis of ethnic, racial, or religious homogeneity, we would still be waging bloody wars these many decades later. Instead, we agreed that we would settle for the borders that we inherited, but we would still pursue continental political, economic, and legal integration. Rather than form nations that looked ever backwards into history with a dangerous nostalgia, we chose to look forward to a greatness none of our many nations and peoples had ever known. We chose to follow the rules of the Organization of African Unity and the United Nations Charter, not because our borders satisfied us, but because we wanted something greater forged in peace. We believe that all states formed from empires that have collapsed or retreated have many peoples in them yearning for integration with peoples in neighboring states. This is normal and understandable. After all, who does not want to be joined to their brethren and to make common purpose with them? However, Kenya rejects such a yearning from being pursued by force. We must complete our recovery from the embers of dead empires in a way that does not plunge us back into new forms of domination and oppression. We rejected irredentism and expansionism on any basis, including racial, ethnic, religious, or cultural factors. We, re we reject it again today. So his perspective here is obviously very valuable. And what Russia is doing here is imperialist expansionism by force, and that's not acceptable at all. Now, you can argue that Russia feels threatened by NATO, and I've made the, the point before that in the event there was some sort of a defensive alliance with Latin American countries because of U.S. aggression, you know, U.S. wouldn't take kindly to some sort of alliance with Russia in Mexico. And, you know, I think that that's a reasonable thing to say, but that still wouldn't justify the United States going into Mexico and trying to take over portions of Mexico or, de or declaring portions of Mexico as part of the United States or independent. You, you, you can't do things like that. It's, it's unacceptable. So, you know, yes, the United States of America and their history of aggression and imperialism is absolutely something that we have to be cautious of. And I will always be skeptical of whatever the State Department says. But at the same time, though, you can't give Russia a pass for their imperialistic endeavors because the U.S. is saying it, right? As a leftist, my goal is to ultimately pursue peace. And so I reject all forms of imperialism, U.S. imperialism and Russian imperialism. And sometimes it's difficult to wade through all of the disinformation and propaganda by both of these imperialist powers. But at the end of the day, I think it's pretty obvious what Russia did. They were aggressive. Doing that is unacceptable. Doing that puts us closer to war. And I don't necessarily believe that this will all lead to World War III. At least I hope that that's the case. Knock on wood, right? But still, what they did was a drastic escalation. And I hope that people see through it and condemn it. I don't care about the excuses. I don't care about the justifications whatsoever. To do what Vladimir Putin did is an explicit escalation. It is explicitly aggressive. And 
I'm against that. I'm against warmongering. I'm against war hawks. I'm against imperialism, period, full stop. Again, don't care who does it. I'm against it. Now, I want to share a really good clip from Mehdi Hassan um, where he kind of goes through the history of Russian imperialism. It's not just the United States who is an aggressive imperialist power. It's also Russia as well. And Mehdi Hassan kind of breaks down how they've been terrorizing their neighborhood. You know, in the same way that the United States invades countries, Russia, they do the same sort of thing just in their backyard. And Mehdi Hassan had a really good message that resonated with me at least at the end. So this is relatively long, but it's, it's worthwhile. Take a look. Let's just take a look at Russia's record under Putin since the late 1990s and how absurd the Kremlin statement is in that light. Because in the 1990s, the Russian government fought not one, but two wars in the oil-rich Russian Republic of Chechnya, which is located along its southern border. The conflict there between Chechen separatists and Russian loyalists preceded Putin. But after he was appointed prime minister in August 1999, the war took on a new and very bloody phase. Islamist fighters invaded the neighboring Republic of Dagestan less than a month later, there were a series of bombings in apartment buildings in Russian cities that left hundreds dead. Russian authorities blamed the attacks on Chechen rebels, on terrorists. But later, in, but later independent investigations presented evidence that strongly suggested the bombings were a false flag attack coordinated by Russian security services to win support for a new full-scale war in Chechnya. The pretext was set. Russia, under its new prime minister, launched a massive months-long aerial campaign that killed tens of thousands of Chechen civilians, creating mass internal displacement and a huge refugee crisis. Russia was accused by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International of committing war crimes against the Chechen people. The siege lasted until February of the following year, and despite the brutal military offensive, leaders in the West largely ignored it. Just the next month, UK Prime Minister Tony Blair visited Putin in St. Petersburg, a private visit to personalize ties with the new Russian leader. They even went to the opera. Then in April, Putin visited the UK, and despite the trip being widely criticized for such poor timing, Blair defended it, saying Putin wanted a strong relationship with the West and that he talks our language of reform. Well, that so-called reformist was just getting started. In 2008, Putin would launch similar aggressions in the former Soviet state of Georgia, also located along Russia's southern border. Georgia became independent in 1991, but the existence of pro-Russian separatists in the self-proclaimed republics of South Ossetia and Abkhazia caused tensions with Moscow. A full-blown diplomatic crisis took place in April 2008. Long story short, Putin launched another war, backing the separatist regions against Georgian forces. He trumpeted claims of genocide being committed against South Ossetians to win public support. Hmm, sound familiar? In just 12 days, hundreds were killed in Georgia and South Ossetia. Tens of thousands were displaced. Russian President Dmitry Medvedev called it a peace enforcement operation. That must be it. The Russians saw their military aggression as peace enforcements, not as attacks. Convenient, right? And maybe that's what the seizing of Crimea in 2014 was to Putin as well. Not an attack or invasion or an annexation, but a peace enforcement. How about Russian bombings in Syria? Attacks that have been called war crimes. Maybe those were peace enforcements too. Today, it's peacekeeping functions in Donbass, according to the Kremlin decree. Poor misunderstood Vladimir Putin. All he wants is peace at the barrel of his gun. 
in response to Putin's latest cynical moves against Ukraine. Even someone like Democratic Socialist Senator Bernie Sanders, who's been much less hawkish than other U.S. lawmakers. Even Bernie called out the Russian president's escalation in a tweet on Saturday. It is beyond belief that in 2022, as we face challenges like COVID and climate change, any national leader would start a war that could kill thousands and create millions of refugees, he wrote. There's a diplomatic solution. It's tragic. Putin seems intent to reject it. Sanders was attacked by some on the far left for those comments. And I get it. The US has very little credibility in calling out any country for foreign aggression or invasions of sovereign territories. But we've covered all that on this show. And the fact is, just because the US too often acts as an imperial power around the world, it doesn't make it okay if Russia and Vladimir Putin do it too. So that was a great segment by Mehdi Hassan, and that last point in particular was really important. You know, it's easy for me to instinctively just dismiss whatever the United States says because we are an aggressive imperialist power, and whenever we say something about another country, odds are we're doing it so we can pursue our own imperialist ventures. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean that you should just disregard other forms of imperialism that are and have been taking place throughout the world. We really have to be nuanced here. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself mostly, trying to be introspective, because this is difficult for me. You know, this is a very complex issue, and I, I feel hesitant to speak about this because I'm not an authority on this. And, you know, the history here, the um, geopolitical politics, it's all so complex, but by, you know, by the end of this video, my takeaway that I want you to leave with is that all imperialism bad, American imperialism and obviously Russian imperialism too. And what Russia did is absolutely aggressive and imperialistic. And the last thing that I will leave you with is that we should absolutely reject any calls for war. We should try to do everything in our power to constantly de-escalate. Sure. Peace looks less likely. De-escalation looks less likely currently. At the moment, it's really bleak. But still, we can't afford to get involved with a war with Russia. A war between the United States and Russia, even if at the moment it doesn't necessarily seem likely, once you kind of have momentum towards a particular direction, it's really hard to shift gears when the momentum is heading in one direction. So before it gets bad, before it becomes this snowball effect, we have to be absolutely vocal in condemning any sorts of escalation make sure that when the u.s responds to russian aggression we're not further escalating ourselves this is really complicated this is a sensitive issue and i really don't intend on talking much about this unless i can bring on an expert and i've reached out to people who are more familiar uh, who are educated on this and when i say educated uh, meaning they didn't just read articles they've been in school for years studying you know eastern uh european politics i think that's really important but the takeaway is we have to try everything in our power to stop war reject calls from warmongers to escalate further and condemn warmongering and imperialism that's taking place around the world you know imperialism is still imperialism even if it's the United States that's not doing it. So as a leftist, I'm just trying to stop an apocalypse. I don't know who's going to start it. I don't know where it's going to come from. But as long as we can stop catastrophic levels of death and destruction, then that's that's my focus. That's my goal. But what Russia did here is obviously antithetical to that goal. It's antithetical to peace and diplomacy. And it's just, it's fucked up and stressful and it's infuriating. But you know, that doesn't mean that we lose hope 
We just try to do what we can to pressure our government to not escalate further. And we just hope that the sanctions will sufficiently, you know, um, dissuade Vladimir Putin from doing more. But who knows how that's going to play out. So we'll just cross our fingers, expect the, expect the worst, but ultimately hope for the best. And I feel like that's really all that we can do and be really, really skeptical of all the information that we receive and acknowledge that people who are making videos about this on YouTube, myself included, we are not authorities like you. I'm just trying to process all of this complex information. I'm trying to weigh through the details. I'm trying to figure out who's good faith actors and bad faith actors. And I'm trying to opt for the best outcome for humanity. And that is no war. So it seems like Republican politicians in states like Florida and Texas are trying to do everything in their power to make the lives of LGBTQ plus children as miserable as possible. And at this point, I really don't even think it's a stretch to say that they enjoy terrorizing gay and trans kids, especially given their behavior over the course of the last couple of days. So there's two stories that I want to talk about here, one from Florida and one from Texas. We'll start with the latter story first, because Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton made this bizarre announcement via Twitter. Sex change operations and puberty blockers prescribed to kids is child abuse under Texas law. These procedures are monstrous and tragic. I'll do everything I can to protect against those who take advantage of and harm young Texans. Okay, first and foremost, there are no children having sex change operations. You made that up. It's a lie that transphobes use to fearmonger about gender-affirming care. Gender-affirming care, oftentimes for youth, usually means therapy, mental health, and sometimes puberty blockers. But that's medically necessary. There are no children having sex change operations. But understand the implications of what he just said here. In the event you are a parent who has a trans child and you seek out gender-affirming care, by his definition, under Texas state law, apparently, you are a child abuser. Therefore, if you are a child abuser, the state of Texas has a responsibility to intervene and remove said child from that, abuse, from that abusive environment and put them in an environment where they're with somebody who is not affirming of their identity. That is such twisted and monstrous logic. He's literally talking about potentially taking trans children out of the homes where they are loved and cared for in order to put them into homes with people who don't affirm their identity. Do you know how many trans children are going to kill themselves if you actually follow through with this? Do you know how irreparably harmful this would be? How much damage it would cause psychologically to trans youth? This is one of the most draconian, violently transphobic things I've seen yet. Now, this move comes after Texas tried but failed to ban gender-affirming care for trans youth. As Dallas Morning News explains, last year, GOP lawmakers tried and failed to change state law to ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors. In August, after pressure from Governor Greg Abbott, the Child Protective Services Agency changed its definition of abuse to include transgender reassignment surgery for minors and promised to investigate any allegations after Abbott directed them to look into the issue. In November of 2021, a prominent Dallas-based clinic treating trans kids called Genesis 
stopped taking new patients. The American Medical Association, American Psychiatric Association, and American Academy of Pediatrics all support providing age-appropriate individualized care for children experiencing gender dysphoria. Just days after Child Protective Services issued its new guidance in August, the Texas Pediatric Society sent the agency a letter urging it to make its decision based on science. Medical care for transgender children and adolescents is evidence-based and has proven effectiveness, Dr. Seth Kaplan, the society's then-president wrote to DFPS Commissioner Jamie Masters August 16th on behalf of its 4,600 pediatrician, pediatric, subspecialist, and medical student members. So because the Texas legislature did not ban gender-affirming care as he wanted, he is unilaterally taking things further by just saying, this is child abuse. If you care for your child in the way that experts say you should care for your child, therefore we're going to take your child away. We're going to kidnap your child essentially if you care for your child and you affirm their identity so that way they are healthier. They grew up in an accepting environment. Can't do that. Can't have that. So we're going to literally say that you loving your child and accepting your child is child abuse and the state is going to take them away from you potentially. This is by far one of the grossest things I've seen with regard to trans youth stories, uh, you know, targeted policies against trans youth. And everyone has to pay attention to this story because in the event this actually were to be the law of the land in Texas, I, I believe that there's going to be legal challenges to this. But in the event, Texas actually set this precedent in their state legally where it is child abuse to give your child health care, gender-affirming health care. I mean, the damage that this will cause, it's just, it's unimaginable. Now, speaking of damage to youth, we uh, go to the state of Florida. Now, we've been talking about their Don't Say Gay Bill, where it essentially bans teachers from even acknowledging the existence of homosexuality in any way, shape, or form. Well, there was an amendment introduced that would make that bill exponentially worse. As Brian Tyler Cohen explains, a new Republican amendment to Florida's Don't Say Gay bill would legally require schools to inform parents within six weeks of learning if a student is any sexual orientation other than straight, even if it would lead to abuse, neglect, or abandonment. The bill already requires schools to inform parents if they find out a student is not straight, but it currently has an exception if the school suspects the information would lead to abuse, neglect, or abandonment. This amendment would explicitly remove that exception. So just pause for a moment and try to uh, let that sink in. This don't say gay bill is already going to make it so that way teachers have to out students. But there was a provision that stopped teachers from having to out students if they feel as if outing said student would put them in danger, and it will in many, many circumstances, this amendment would re remove that. So that way it doesn't even matter what you'd endanger that child by outing them to a hostile parent who's homophobic doesn't matter. This is so unbelievably unnecessarily cruel that anyone who believes that they are doing all of this, uh, introducing all of these policies in Republican-controlled states across the country because they care about LGBTQ plus children. I mean, they're going mask off. They don't just hate LGBTQ plus children. They want them to die. They want them to commit suicide. When we talk about how these types of policies harm LGBTQ plus youth and it leads to increased suicide rates, that's not dissuading them. They like it. They want that to happen. That's, that's 
what we have to deduce from this situation. It's so beyond the pale that you can't come to any other conclusion. Now, um, let's look at some of the proponents and what they have to say, because uh, I'll let you determine for yourself if these are serious people with serious concerns for children. Children in kindergarten do not need to hear about a hundred different sexual orientations, sexual preferences in reality, and gender identities. Our children are not and should not be part of a social experiment. This can only be known as indoctrination. Should teachers tell children, pick a gender, any gender, you'll be happy? Do we say lie, cheat, kill, still, you'll be happy? And LBGQ issues. Children can be traumatized by these non-biblical issues. I can tell you what's inappropriate. is a man in a Speedo talking about sex to the class or a drag queen coming into an elementary school. Oh yes, the uh, supposed army of men in Speedos infiltrating schools is definitely something that we should be worrying about. Um, and we should worry about it so much that we should pass a law where we force teachers to out students. Do you understand? These people are fucking morons. They are ignorant, they are stupid, and they are driven by hatred. And they hate gay and trans people so much that they're taking it out on children. See, they feel as if they lost this culture war when it comes to gay rights. You know, we have LGBTQ plus marriage now, trans people are gaining more visibility, and they're fighting against this, but they're targeting children, the most vulnerable of all. And it is truly morally reprehensible, and it should make you nauseous. It makes me nauseous. It's vomit-inducing. These people are fucking scum. Now, the good news is that, thankfully, the so-called forced to disclosure amendment has been withdrawn from the bill. But the mere fact that it was ever even considered proves that they don't care at all if gay children die, they don't care. Even if outing a child to their parents puts that child at risk of child abuse or even homelessness, they don't care. They were going to create a, an amendment, or they did create an amendment, amendment before it was withdrawn to make sure that that kid is outed anyway. Now listen, as somebody who was outed as an adult, I'm still recovering mentally from the damage that that caused. But if you do this to children, the damage that it will cause will never leave them. You will scar them for life. You will ruin their lives. You can't just choose to out them when coming out is such a sensitive process. Somebody from the LGBTQ plus community doesn't just come out flippantly so. They have to evaluate whether or not they are, they're in a safe environment, whether or not coming out will cause more harm than good if they have hostile parents or siblings or family members. So the fact that this was even considered goes to show you how they don't care at all about gay kids and trans kids. And, you know, it's not like there isn't a provision to out. It's just that now they're saying, okay, I guess you don't have to out a kid if it's going to lead to abuse or neglect. Wow, well, how merciful of them. How fucking merciful. Look, Republicans hate LGBTQ plus youth, they hate them. And um, they don't care if their lives are affected in a negative way by their policies. They don't care if these kids die. They want to erase them out of existence. And if that means that we see increased suicides, increased homelessness with LGBTQ plus youth, they don't care.
The Council for National Policy is a right-wing organization who in 2020 urged its members to contact state lawmakers in Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, all so they can influence these lawmakers to undemocratically overturn the election in favor of Donald Trump. Now, there's a lot of right-wing organizations that did just that, but the reason why this one is of particular interest is because one of its members, one of its prominent members, mind you, is this woman right here. Her name is Virginia Thomas, and she is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, let me repeat that. This organization, which the spouse of a Supreme Court Justice is a part of, was trying to encourage people to pressure lawmakers to subvert the will of voters. A little bit close to Clarence Thomas, no? So, at a minimum, it's a conflict of interest, obviously, but a bombshell report from the New York Times suggests that this is a lot more. It goes deeper than just a conflict of interest. And as Danny Hakim and Joe Becker of the New York Times report, Virginia Thomas had taken on a prominent role at the council during the Trump years and by 2019 had joined the nine-member board of CNP Action, an arm of the council organized as a 501c4 under a provision of the tax code that allows for direct political advocacy. It was CNP Action that circulated the November Action Steps document, the existence of which has not been previously reported. It instructed members to pressure Republican lawmakers into challenging the election results and appointing alternate slates of electors, demand that they not abandon their constitutional responsibilities during a time such as this. Such a plan, if carried out successfully, would have almost certainly landed before the Supreme Court and Ginny Thomas's husband. In fact, Trump was already calling for that to happen. In a December 2nd speech at the White House, the president falsely claimed that millions of votes were cast illegally in swing states alone and said he hoped the Supreme Court of the United States will see it and will do what's right for our country because our country cannot live with this kind of an election. Ginny Thomas insists in her counsel biography that she and her husband operate in separate professional lanes, but those lanes in fact merge with notable frequency. For the three decades he has sat on the Supreme Court, they have worked in tandem from the bench and the political trenches to take aim at targets like Roe v. Wade and affirmative action. Now, if Justice Clarence Thomas had any integrity whatsoever, he would resign because of this conflict of interest. But the way that her political advocacy and her work with organizations overlaps with Clarence Thomas's work as a Supreme Court justice, I mean, he should just be impeached. This is unacceptable. Her organization was trying to get people to put pressure on lawmakers so they send fake electors to the Electoral College so they can subvert the will of voters. And when this ultimately comes before the Supreme Court in the event this were to be successful, her husband will then give the final death blow to democracy. This is insane. To say it's insane really is an understatement. We have a Supreme Court justice whose wife is part of this insurrectionist movement to kill democracy in the United States, and I don't think that it's unreasonable to suggest that he's also sympathetic to this movement that his wife is directly involved in. Now, that's not the only horrible thing that Virginia uh, has done, but it's probably the worst. But here's some more details here. In addition to her perch at the Council for National Policy, she founded a group called Groundswell with the support of Stephen K. Bannon, the hardline nationalist and former Trump advisor. It holds a weekly meeting of influential conservatives, many of whom work directly on issues that have come before the Supreme Court. So she works with organizations that try to get specific issues 
to the Supreme Court, where her husband will then rule in a very biased way. And one thing that the article points out is that this is really unprecedented. Usually Supreme Court justices, they don't even speak at many events because they want to make sure that it is viewed that they are as impartial as they can possibly be. So they don't want to in any way, shape or form signal to people that they are taking a political side, even though we know that that's what they do, but they're just shameless. And that's what the article really goes into. They are shameless. Uh, Clarence Thomas is a brazen ideologue and he doesn't care how this looks. Now, the article itself is incredibly long and comprehensive, so we obviously can't get through all of it, but there's a couple of main takeaways that I think are really fascinating to me. So, first and foremost, uh, she used her husband's position as a Supreme Court justice to gain access to Trump's White House. Once she was there, she aggressively lobbied for certain policies and personnel to the point where aides in the Oval Office reportedly were aggravated at her. She and Clarence Thomas attended events hosted by conservative organizations, specifically organizations that that try to get particular issues like Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court, and they both leveraged their positions in government, he in the Supreme Court, her in the White House, to attract donations and memberships to said organizations. So the pattern here is that consistently they both overlap. She says that her and her husband have separate political lives. What's the specific uh, phrase that she used? Separate political or separate professional lanes, rather. But that isn't actually happening. And one paragraph that's damning really concisely summarizes what's going on here with them. New reporting also shows how blurred the lines between the couple's interests became during the effort to overturn the 2020 election, which culminated in the rally held at the Ellipse, just outside the White House grounds, aimed at stopping Congress from certifying the state votes that gave Biden his victory. Many of the rally organizers and those advising Trump had connections to the Thomases, but little has been known about what role, if any, Ginny Thomas played beyond the fact that on the morning of the March to Save America, as the rally was called, she urged her Facebook followers to watch how the day unfolded. Love MAGA people she posted before the march turned violent. God bless each of you standing up or praying. God bless each of you standing up or praying. Standing up for what specifically? To overturn the election in favor of Donald Trump because she favors authoritarianism. She favors a pro-Trump dictatorship over the democratic will of the people. So to say that this is an issue is a gross understatement. I, I, I'm honestly shocked. This is a bombshell. And I get that there's a lot of things going on in the world currently, but this is a massive, massive scandal. A member of the Supreme Court has a wife who is affiliated with the insurrectionist movement in the United States to kill democracy. So to say that he poses a threat to democracy and the Constitution itself, I think that that's pretty reasonable no so there should absolutely be uh you know a thorough investigation into this and if he had integrity as i stated he would resign because of this conflict of interest and being a supreme court justice and wanting at least in theory to maintain the facade of impartiality you'd think that he you know would would shy away from this stuff but no him and his wife are overtly political and not just political in terms of them endorsing particular positions. They tried to kill democracy in the United States. At least she did. And we know he's sympathetic to what she's doing because they're fucking married. So are, are we naive? Are we going to pretend as if there's some division between them? She doesn't talk about 
what she's doing and he doesn't talk about what he is doing before bed? Are, are we that naive as a country? Get him out of there. Impeach him. He should not be a Supreme Court justice when he's part of this effort, not only to undermine democracy, but to frivolously bring lawsuits before the Supreme Court so they can overturn decades of precedent at the behest of Republican extremists in this country. It's truly just ridiculous that this is the state of American politics where we have Supreme Court justices so brazenly and overtly political and not just political, but extremist in their right-wing ideology. And they're basically flaunting it, using their positions of power to, you know, build up membership, shore up support with these organizations that his wife works with. It's truly not acceptable at a minimum, but I mean, there should be consequences for him. This should not stand. And, you know, the same would be true if this were one of the liberal justices. Just imagine if, uh, let's say, Justice Sotomayor was speaking at Black Lives Matter hosted events and talking about Medicare for All and going out of her way to be affiliated with organizations like Justice Democrats, for example, or any political organization. Do you know how the right would respond? They would be screeching at the top of their lungs about this, how this is an activist justice and she shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. And they'd be right about that. But when Justice Thomas is doing it, well, because he's pursuing their extremist agenda, they're okay with it. No, this is the definition of an activist judge. His wife is an insurrectionist, and he probably is an insurrectionist too. He's at least at a minimum, like, sympathetic towards the insurrectionist movement. So what is he doing? Impeach him, get him off the Supreme Court, or pack the fucking Supreme Court so his influence diminishes. This is not okay. Well, if you're a parent with a trans child and you live in Texas, now is officially the time to get out. And I know that it's easier said than done. Moving costs money, and a lot of people don't have the resources needed to flee the state. But now is the time to consider an escape plan, because the situation has gotten very bad in Texas to the point where if you are a loving parent and you care for your trans child, you will be treated as a criminal. And it's sad that it's come to this, but unfortunately, this is the reality of the situation, and I don't feel as if people in Texas who have trans children are safe. So, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, has officially directed the state's Family and Protective Services to begin investigating all trans children in Texas and prosecuting their parents as child abusers. He has also instructed all teachers, doctors, and caregivers to begin reporting any trans students they see. Now, the order that he signed threatens criminal penalties on doctors, nurses, and teachers who fail to report, quote, abuse, which they are describing as gender-affirming care for trans youth. And that is explicitly laid out. So if you have a duty to report in Texas, uh, Texas is officially saying that you have to report trans youth to Family and Protective Services or you risk losing your job. So if you are a loving parent, and you have a trans kid, and you do what anyone with common sense would do, and you seek out gender-affirming care for them, you are going to be treated as a criminal and a child abuser. And as a result, Child Protective Services might actually take your kid away from you. This is state-sanctioned kidnapping. And even if a court blocks this before anything bad happens, the message is very, very clear. We don't know what's going to happen, to be clear, but the message here is very clear. You are not welcome, and the state of Texas is trying to criminalize 
gender-affirming care for trans youth. They're trying to eradicate the existence of trans children. And the result will be absolutely catastrophic. It's, uh, it's like a punch to the gut seeing this. This is happening in the United States of America, where certain Americans, because of who they are, are being hunted by their state. And this comes after we've heard the Republican Party for months screech at the top of their lungs about the state taking away the rights of parents when it comes to school mask mandates, when it comes to CRT, critical race theory. But now when it comes to gender affirming care, just being a good parent, they're treating you as a child abuser. And it's already difficult if you are a trans child. Your life will be a lot more difficult than your cis peers. But this is making it so that way, if you're one of the lucky trans kids to have actually loving parents, well, too bad for you as well, apparently, according to the state of Texas. As Trung Win put it, most queer kids have at some point in their childhood considered the possibility that they might have to go it alone in case their coming out goes badly. And now Abbott wants to deprive the trans kids who do have loving parents of their family support. Just evil. Exactly. Now, what does gender-affirming care mean? specifically. We'll talk about what it means and what the experts are saying about gender-affirming care for trans youth, but this is really raw. Gender-affirming care can be something as simple as letting your child socially transition, allow them to dress as the gender that they identify with more, taking them to therapy. That's part of gender-affirming care. But what they're really trying to focus on here are uh, surgeries, which are incredibly uncommon for trans youth no trans child no minor is having bottom surgery um but really what they're trying to eradicate is the use of puberty blockers which are reversible by the way they're medically necessary and they allow children to kind of make their choice get on puberty blockers so that way you don't go through puberty and you kind of you have more time to make that decision they're trying to block that they're saying that's child abuse here it's truly just it's so insane. Um, now, before we talk about the specifics here uh, with regard to gender-affirming care and what this means, I just want to provide families in Texas with some resources here. So if you are in Texas, the safest nearby state to go to is likely going to be Colorado and New Mexico. If you are a parent with a trans kid and are looking to escape these issues from ever popping up again, uh, well, any state in the dark green is the best. Take a screenshot, save this image all along the West Coast. I mean, you know, you are going to be pretty safe here. Now, legal help is costly, but um, Aaron is recommending that you try to contact the ACLU of Texas or Lambda Legal. Not a guarantee that they're going to be able to help you, but just something to kind of keep in mind. And if you have money to spare, please, please, please consider donating to a family in need who's trying to leave Texas but can't afford to. Uh, I want to direct you to a GoFundMe that I found of uh, a mother. Her name is Violet, and she has a daughter named Issa. And they are trying to get out of Texas as quickly as possible. I will link you to their GoFundMe down below. She acknowledges that this is not a safe environment to raise her child in. And now that she's essentially being hunted down by the state, she has to get out. Please, to all of my viewers, if you could chip in a buck or two, it will go to this family to help them get out of this terrible state. So let's talk about gender-affirming care a little bit more. There's so much ignorance here, and the problem is that people don't know trans people they don't know anyone with a trans child so they just make a lot of assumptions based on their worldview based on their ignorance to this particular issue and this is something that is absolutely crucial for trans youth right gender affirming care 
is medically necessary. And that's not me saying that. That's what the experts say. So last year, when there were a ton of different anti-trans bills popping up in GOP-controlled states across the country, they were trying to ban gender-affirming care. And then a lot of experts, they spoke out. So here's what the uh, ACLU said. So they kind of took all of these uh, opinions from experts and they summarized it. So they say medical experts agree gender affirming care is medically necessary care that can be life saving for transgender youth. I'll read that again. Life saving. Trans youth know who they are. Multiple studies have shown that providing gender affirming care is life saving by dramatically reducing depression and suicidal ideation. So that's basically a summary of what the experts are saying. So here's what the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry say. So they support the use of current evidence based clinical care with minors. AACAP strongly opposes any efforts, legal, legislative, and otherwise, to block access to these recognized interventions. Blocking access to timely care has been shown to increase youth's risk for suicidal ideation and other negative mental health outcomes. Now, here's what the American Medical Association says about this. The American Medical Association views these bills as a dangerous legislative intrusion into the practice of medicine and has been working closely with state medical associations to vigorously oppose them. In letters to legislators, the AMA has emphasized that it is imperative that transgender minors be given the opportunity to explore their gender identity under the safe and supportive care of a physician. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics calls bans on gender-affirming care, quote, dangerous. So the experts are saying it is absolutely important that a doctor, a parent, and their child make these decisions together. We don't allow the state to intervene and say no gender-affirming care. Because again, gender-affirming care is, is a really broad category. By just affirming your child's identity under Texas standards, you could be viewed as an abuser, which is insane to me. But let's look at some of the uh, the story. So when the Arkansas bill was being debated, there was a doctor that showed up to kind of testify and explain the effect that bans on gender affirming care would have on trans youth. And there's also a testimony from uh, a young trans man. And uh, take a look at what they have to say. I just want to speak from the heart for these kids who really are the bravest, brightest, Type A, high-achieving, amazing children. I mean, I just can't go on enough about them. They're just amazing kids, okay? And they know who they are, and they know who they are from a very young age. Just after this bill passed the House, these kids heard about it. I've had multiple kids in our emergency room because of an attempted suicide. Just in the last week, uh, multiple. I've had multiple children. Do you know how many phone calls I've had to field in the last week of children calling me saying, Dr. Hutchison, if this happens, I'm going to kill myself. Multiple. So I guarantee you, if this bill passes, children will die. And I will call you guys every single time one does. This bill will cause human beings, trans beings, children's death. I can promise you that if a supportive process had been the norm when I was a child instead of this outdated rhetoric, the scars of attempted suicide will not adorn my body to this day. The trauma wouldn't live in my bones that I worked to overcome to this day. So I beseech you to please vote against this murderous bill. The options for trans-affirming health care should principally always be left to the people themselves and not legislators. Yeah. So um, the impact that this will have on trans youth is just, it's going to be catastrophic. One more video that I want to show you. This is from a fourth grader. Now she's in fifth grade. This was recorded last year when Texas was considering a ban on gender affirming care legislatively. But since that didn't go through, now the governor's doing it. But listen to her story here. Hello, 
My name is Kai Shapley. Um, I love ballet, math, science, and geology. I spend my free time with my cats, chickens, FaceTiming my friends, and dreaming of when I will finally meet Dolly Parton. I do not like spending my free time asking adults to make good choices. I've been having to explain myself since I was three or four years old. Texas legislators have been attacking me since pre-K. I am in fourth grade now. When it comes to bills that target trans youth, I immediately feel angry. It's been very scary and overwhelming. It just, it makes me sad that some politicians use trans kids like me to get votes from people who hate me just because I exist. God made me. God loves me for who I am, and God does not make mistakes. You should be careful how you treat the least of these. Please, just listen to me, hear me, try to educate yourselves, try to understand everybody. My mom has been giving everything she has to stand up for me. With these new things y'all are trying to do, we both are having to advocate for each other because you are now targeting a great mom and a great nurse. My mom needs her nursing license to take care of me and my siblings. Bullying is bad. Please stop. Don't make bad choices. It's never too late to turn it around. And I want to say thank you to those of you who are sticking up for kids like me. By the time I am in college, you will be celebrated in the history books. And now that little girl's mother is considered a child abuser. When it's clear that that little girl is cared for well and she's loved by her parents. But because of Texas, now she's subject to abuse when she looks perfectly happy and healthy. It's just the politicians who are trying to make her miserable. It's, it's sickening. Attacks on trans people, one of the most marginalized communities in the world, are sick enough. But what we're seeing from Republicans is an attack on the most vulnerable, trans youth. And it's gotten so bad that they're trying to criminalize trans identities, criminalize trans youth, and essentially hunt down loving parents and possibly take their children away from them, punish doctors and teachers who don't report this abuse. It's absolutely disgusting, and I have no respect for people who don't speak out against this. This truly is something that everyone should care about. This isn't just a trans rights issue. This is a human rights issue, and this is a violation of human rights. We're to the point now where people have to flee the state of Texas because of the assault on trans children. Let that sink in. This is where we're at as a country. And Texas isn't going to be the last state to do this. I hope that this gets defeated, but either way, if you live in Texas, this isn't going to be the last thing that they do to try to punish you for being a loving parent. So I suggest you get out if you can. Uh, I'll be sharing GoFundMes as they pop up. This is just, uh, again, I don't know how to even process this. This is a punch to the gut, and I can't imagine what families in Texas are going through right now after hearing about this news.
Well, Trump's answer to Twitter launched this week, Truth Social, and the rollout has been a little bit rocky to say the least. Uh, so apparently they already suffered a site-wide outage that lasted 13 hours or so. On top of that, the website is functionally unusable for hundreds of thousands of people who are stuck on a waiting list that exists for some reason. Are they vetting the users? What's the point of that. But all of these problems aside, apparently, you know, it's really worthwhile to use Truth Social because this is a website that prides itself on being a beacon of free speech. This is the First Amendment platform. So this sounds like a great sell for me. I absolutely am excited to uh, make an account, infiltrate this uh, website, and plaster communist agitprop everywhere. But apparently, I might not be as welcome as I initially thought because there are reports that people are getting banned left and right for criticizing Donald Trump? Excuse me? What? I thought this was the free speech platform. So users are reporting that they're getting banned for criticizing Donald Trump. Apparently, it seems as if you are not allowed to disparage the president, Donald Trump. Matt Ortega claims that he was censored for making a parody account. What? Hang on a second. That's protected under the First Amendment. Are we not allowed to make parodies on Truth Social? What gives? And uh, get this, even right-wingers are being censored. So a right-wing pundit claims that he was censored for saying government officials who authorized COVID vaccines for kids, quote, should be put on trial and executed. Wow. I mean, when you can't even publicly call for the execution of public health officials, I just have to assume that that website doesn't respect freedom of speech. Um, but on a serious note, people are trying to figure out what exactly it is that's acceptable to post because the parameters are kind of bizarre. We don't know what they are. This is supposed to be a free speech platform that is intended to compete with big tech platforms that apparently censor people for frivolous reasons. But yet... People are getting criticized for making parody accounts and criticizing Donald Trump. We can do that on Twitter currently. We can make parody accounts on Twitter currently. So is Twitter more pro-free speech than Donald Trump? I'm not sure, but what specifically does it say in the terms of service about freedom of speech? Well, as Chris Walker of Truthout reports, although Trump promised that Truth Social would be the standard bearer of free speech and anti-censorship, Truth Social's terms of service grant the site permission to ban, quote, any person for any reason or for no reason whatsoever. But I thought this was, no, not a, not a free speech platform? Okay, okay. Seems like this is less of a social media platform and more of a Donald Trump platform for him to talk at you. He doesn't care what you have to say. He's not interested in your tweets or rather truths or your retruths. That's literally what they're calling it. It's so Orwellian when he lied so much. He's not interested in what you have to say. He's not interested in the social media element of this website. He just wants to talk at you. And he wants you to clap like seals at every single thing that he says. He tweets while he's shitting at 3 a.m. He wants you to respond to it saying he's amazing. This is for him, not for you. He doesn't care about your free speech. He cares about his freedom of speech. And he's mad that he was banned from Twitter. So this is just his new Twitter. Although I have to say, it honestly is hilarious that so many people are getting banned. And it doesn't seem like there's good reason to ban these folks, right? Disparaging Donald Trump, creating parody accounts, to get banned on this platform when you 
claim that you're free speech. I mean, it's very it's very on brand for Donald Trump to be a complete hypocrite and contradict everything that he says. But again, this this isn't a social media platform. I think that a lot of people assumed that this would be, you know, a competitor with Twitter. But I don't one think that Trump is competent enough to do that, given how many problems the website already has. But again, this isn't about anyone else. Trump doesn't care about people using the platform. He just wants people to use the platform insofar as they listen to what he has to say, because social media was one of his many addictions. So, you know, that's what this is about. That's why he's banning people if you disparage him. So I, I just, I think it's funny and uh, I will continue to keep you updated. And when I am able to successfully infiltrate Truth Social, I will report back because I'm gonna have some fun on this website. I'm gonna try to go undetected. I'm not gonna tell anyone my username. I will absolutely try to see how far I can get, but um, if I can get a retruth by the president, the former president, Donald Trump, I will consider this a success. I mean, it's a smaller platform, so maybe there's a higher likelihood that he'll notice me, but um, we'll see, we'll see. I'm definitely, I'm definitely gonna check out Truth Social, yeah. You know, I told that story earlier about being at Town Hall, the bar and restaurant down the street, where I told folks that I'm going to debate Morgan Harper. She's like AOC, almost sm only smarter. A after hearing that answer, I actually think she's like AOC, only dumber. Because the reality is... That was Ohio Senate candidate Josh Mandel, a Republican simpleton who resorted to insulting his debate opponent, Morgan Harper, after he realized that he was intellectually outmatched by a lot. Oh, and here he is, proudly accepting the endorsement of Michael Flynn, who once advocated for a Myanmar-style coup here in the United States. Keep this in mind because he's going to purport that his opponent, Morgan Harper, is an extremist, but I don't think it gets much more extreme than associating with someone who calls for authoritarianism. And this individual is not just a virtue signaling douchebag and a Trump bootlicking sycophant. He's also a whiny baby because after that debate, after he humiliated himself by acting like a fool, he went on Fox News to whine about how the crowd didn't like him, not because he was being a prick, but because they were racist because he's white. I'm not joking about this. Take a look. Uh, I was debating one of my Democrat opponents because I'll debate anyone, anywhere, anytime. And I challenged her to a debate and I said, pick the spot. So she picked a black church here in the Cleveland area uh, in, a, in an urban, heavily African-American area. I showed up and we had a hearty exchange of ideas and, and debated the, the uh, policy views of uh, our, our viewpoints. And unfortunately, not only could the radical leftists I was debating against not hold her own, but then the audience started chiming in. You had guys there from Black Lives Matter. You had other radical leftists there who kept interrupting me. And basically, they were asking me to leave because I was a white guy in a black church. And it's just, it, it's horrible. It's I don't, <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. Some people just have no self-awareness. It couldn't possibly be that the crowd didn't like the fact that he was being a condescending prick to his opponent and had no respect for Morgan Harper. No, it's because they're racist because he's white. Racism is alive and well, folks, and it's just the white people who are dealing with it the most. It's tough being white. As a white person, I've got to say, Man, you don't you don't want to know what it's like to be white in America, folks. What a fucking moron. I don't even know how to deal with this. Now, calling his opponent dumb is not the only dickheaded thing this dipshit did throughout the duration of the debate. So take a look at the way he responds to her and calls her angry multiple times. Morgan, why, why are you so angry? 
This angry radical leftist is all about political gamesmanship. First of all, Morgan, are you okay? Like the, the question was about big tech and you're talking about immigration. Are you, are you okay? And second of all, why are you getting so angry? You don't have to get angry. The reality is these big tech companies. Gee, I wonder why the audience didn't like him. It must be because he's white. Now, um, aside from being condescending and overly arrogant, he's genuinely stupid, and he demonstrates this throughout the course of the debate. Therefore, in my opinion, I think it's obvious that when he calls her dumb, it's projection because he has no policy substance. Because throughout the course of this debate, she ran circles around him. He had nothing but platitudes. I mean, he's someone who prides himself on running on God's uh, guns and Trump, whereas she's actually talking about specifically uh, specific policy prescriptions that would help people in Ohio. So this person is a dipshit. And when he called her dumb, he was responding to her arguing vehemently in favor of Medicare for all and not just Medicare for all universal mental health care programs, which I don't think gets talked about enough. But take a look. So he's, he's going to share some of his beliefs with respect to policy and then watch the way that she responds when he claims that she's angry. After hearing that answer, I actually think she's like AOC, only dumber. Whoa. Because the reality Whoa. is, Whoa. if we had universal health care in this country, it would bring down the quality of health care for every American citizen. Vote by mail allows people like Morgan Harper and leftist organizations funded by Mark Zuckerberg and others to commit fraud and cheating in the election system. I, I just find it insulting for you to say that like, somehow I'm trying to suppress the rights of blacks to vote. While you were prancing around, dripping, sinking, sipping lattes at Stanford and Princeton, I was serving in the United States Marine Corps overseas, putting my life in the hands of young black men, and they were putting their life in my hands. And so for you to tell me that I have not fought and I have not stood up for the rights of blacks or whites or Hispanics or Asians to vote. To vote. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. So you can go out there and ride your scooters with your liberals and drink your lattes with okay, your liberals. Mr. But the reality Mr. is, I have actually Mr. stood Mandel. up for the right of people to vote. There is nothing, nothing healthy or sanitary about putting a face diaper on a five-year-old kid. It is a form of child abuse. But you have radical leftists like... Morgan Harper, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. These people are loony. Ms. Harper. Let's talk about what's radical and loony. That any time a black woman is standing before you and has an opinion, that somehow that suddenly becomes angry mm -hmm. and out of line. Mm -hmm. So that's radical. And you better be prepared to have a lot of black people stating what we need and what we are advocating for in front of you and be able to do that without pulling on racist tropes, because that's what we've heard a lot of tonight. And so what the question was about was creating economic opportunity for the black community. And it should be a priority for anyone who's thinking of being in the US Senate. And here's what my plan is. We are going to be creating jobs, as I've said, in the clean energy sector, including in neighborhoods like this one, building out public transit infrastructure, making sure that these are jobs that are union protected. We are gonna get rid of student debt, which is one of the biggest burdens facing our generation. We are gonna make sure that we are keeping jobs up with the cost of living, and we are going to ensure that we have access to universal health care, including mental health care, addiction recovery Thank services. This is what we need 
This is what we deserve. And what we cannot have happen is have a U.S. senator who is bought out to corporate interests, like Harper. my opponent here today and my opponent in the Democratic Party. Thank you, Ms. Harper. We learned from last debate no familiarity with the U.S. Constitution, doesn't even understand that we have separation of church and state. Two, talking about pro-life. What about the lives of thousands of Ohioans who, that have been lost to the coronavirus, to violence, as I mentioned, just down the street from where we stand right now? People like him and my opponent in the Democratic primary are funded by special interests. That is who they are beholden to. They are not for us. I am running for the United States Senate to bring true community-first leadership to Ohio. How I got here has a lot to do with my family's experience of going from rock bottom all the way to, to being able to stabilize. A lot of accusations about the fact that I'm elitist. I am proud that my mother worked so hard to be able to put me in an opportunity to get scholarships, to go to great schools, and that has what made me laser focused on bringing that same opportunity to every Ohioan. We can do this, Ohio. It is our turn. We have to put an end to a generation of career politicians who are about themselves and distraction and get one of us to Washington, D.C. Let's do it. MorganHarper.org. Morganize. It is our turn, and we are ready to go. Thank you. That was incredible, and I love that she didn't shake his hand. No respect for you, buddy. Sorry you didn't respect me, so go fuck yourself. I'm not going to shake your hand. You called me dumb. You called me loony. You said that I'm an extremist when you're palling around with people who are calling for the end of democracy in the United States in favor of a dictatorship. Fuck you. I'm not going to shake your hand. So I love that, and I love her response there. Uh, so let's, let's recap here that clip. There was a lot there. So uh, he implied that she wanted to use vote by mail to cheat. I live in Oregon. Vote by mail has been the norm since I've been old enough to vote. And guess what? It works really well. Both Republicans and Democrats here like it. And if you took it away from us, we would be pissed off. It just makes the process of democracy easier. But he thinks she specifically wants to use that to cheat. But yet he supports Trump's effort to cheat. He supports the big lie. He advocated for this throughout the debate. So uh, she wants to cheat with vote by mail. He also claimed that he's not racist because he was in the military and there were black people there with him. Wow. Well, I mean, I, I'm convinced. Wow. You, you had black people in the military with you. You were both fighting in wars. Cool. I guess that confirms that you're not racist. Hey, you know, uh, I saw a black person once at the store not racist, didn't say anything, didn't say anything offensive whatsoever. That means I'm not racist. I mean, this logic here is childish. This this is a child. Uh, he also uh, said that masks were child abuse and he called them face diapers. I mean, he is a Republican talking point machine with a douchey twist and probably 90 times more insufferable than the average chud. What a fucking dipshit. He might be more insufferable than Ted Cruz, no cap. Like I actually think he might be worse than Ted Cruz. So smug, so overly arrogant. Where does all of this confidence come from? You know nothing. You know fuck all about policy. You got your clock cleaned. So all you could do was insult your opponent and claim she was angry. How are you not angry given the state of the world? How are you not angry? How can you just prance around as if everything is copacetic in the United States? Our country is fucking falling apart. And you think it's weird that she's angry? If you're not angry, you're uninformed. 
So listen, if this doesn't convince you to support Morgan Harper, nothing will. So she's still competing in a, in a Democratic Party primary and she's running against Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan is a corporate Democrat who oftentimes like to, uh, likes to LARP as a populist, but he's just a corporate Democrat and an opportunist. He co-sponsored Medicare for All, but when he ran for president, he was vehemently against it. He's a liar. And so one thing that's special about Morgan Harper is that she actually has policy prescriptions for issues, and more importantly, she's not corrupt. So I think that part of the reason why Josh was so upset was because she exposed his entire gimmick. He's a talking point machine, but he's no different than all these other corporate puppets in DC. She's not taking corporate money. And the same can be said for Tim Ryan, her Democratic Party op opponent. So to go up against Josh Mandel, assuming he wins the Republican primary, she'd need to first defeat Tim Ryan. So this is someone who actually needs to be elected to Congress because she actually cares about the issues that affects us. She actually supports policies like Medicare for All, student debt cancellation, and she's not taking corporate money. She's not a sellout. So go support Morgan Harper, morganharper.org. Send her a few bucks if you can. We don't need another corporate Democrat in the Senate like Tim Ryan because he would do nothing to meaningfully change this country. We need another Bernie Sanders in the Senate. We need Morgan Harper in the Senate. And that debate was just incredible. So this really is a good example of what happens when you crush your opponent, when they don't have policy substance and they just have right-wing platitudes and talking points. They get angry and they lash out at you. They call you dumb, but it kind of just confirms that he was losing the debate and he knew it because what else was he going to do? He's an intellectual lightweight and a simpleton who's trying to ride on Donald Trump's coattails. He doesn't have a single unique thought in his head, whereas Morgan Harper, does she actually is a unique individual who's coming up with solutions that aren't being proposed in dc so you know it's it really egregious the way that he treated her but you know why he was doing that because he was losing he was looking weak and she was absolutely wiping the floor with him and he didn't like that so he had to try to find a way to save face and he insulted her, but it just made him look like an ass and it made him look even dumber when he claimed that the crowd didn't like him because they're racist. They're not racist, Josh. They just don't like you because you have no policy substance and you're an asshole. It happened. It actually happened. Russia launched a full-scale attack on Ukraine and like all of you, I'm trying to process this information and I'm closely following reports from journalists on the ground, but all of this just feels so unreal. It feels like a fever dream. And if you live in Ukraine, it's got to feel like a complete nightmare that you wish you can wake up from. But this is real life. This actually happened. We're witnessing history unfold, and it's going to lead to catastrophic levels of death and destruction. And it's... Uh, it's difficult to even try to condense all of this information. By the time that I film this video and upload it to YouTube, what I'm saying will already be outdated. So keep all of that in mind. I just want to point out some things that I think are really noteworthy that I think you should pay attention to. First and foremost, attacks have been reported in all parts of Ukraine. This map at the time that I record is outdated. So who knows what that's going to look like by the time that you see this video. 
The Ukraine healthcare minister, Viktor Lyashko, is reporting that Russians are striking hospitals. Russia has captured the Chernobyl power plant. Russia has reportedly seized Snake Island, which is about 25 miles from Romania. And Romania, mind you, is a NATO state. Not good. Not good at all. So just to kind of show you what's happening here, there's a CNN reporter who's on the ground. So he was at the um, Antonov airport and he's reporting as Russian troops and uh, Ukrainian forces are in the middle of battle. Take a look at this just so you get a, sen a sense of how terrifying this is. Right in the middle of the fighting. Matthew, tell us what you're witnessing there. Stop, stop. We may get... We Jim, we've come out of the center of the uh, Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and we are here at the Antonov airport, which is about 25 kilometers, 15 miles or so out of the center. These troops you can see over here, stand up, Lewis. These troops you can see over here, they are Russian airborne forces. They have taken this airport. They've allowed us to come in and be with them as they defend the perimeter of this air base here, where uh, helicopter-borne troops, these troops, uh, were landed in the early hours of this morning to take and to form an air bridge to allow for more troops to come. And you can see these are Russian forces. You can tell they're Russian. I've spoken to them already. You can tell they're Russian. They've got that orange and black band to identify them as Russian forces. I've spoken to the commander on the ground there within the past few minutes, and he said they are now in control of this airport. And within the past few seconds, just before you came to us, they were engaged in a firefight presumably with the Ukrainian military, which says it is staging a counteroffensive to try and take back this, this, this airport. That reporter is a very brave person. The people who put their lives on the line to get us this information, it, I mean, you, you can't say enough about how courageous they are. Now, I don't know how Russia is going to be able to wage a sustained war in ukraine given that their economy is in freefall their stock market is plummeting so i don't know how they're going to do this and that's not even taken into account the new round of sanctions that the united states and other countries have announced here's what president biden said just a couple of hours uh, before i recorded this video we've now sanctioned russian banks that together hold around one trillion dollars in assets We've cut off Russia's largest bank, a bank that holds more than one third of Russia's banking assets by itself, cut it off from the U.S. financial system. And today, we're also blocking four more major banks. That means every asset they have in America will be frozen. This includes VTB, the second largest bank in Russia, which has $250 billion in assets. As promised, we're also adding the names to the list of Russian elites and their family members that are sanctioning, that were sanctioned as well. Yeah. So things are escalating rapidly and um, it's just, I don't even know what to say. I'm supposed to be a political commentator and provide you with political commentary, but like all of you, I'm just watching in horror at this situation and I'm hoping that this all ends soon. Now, we're going to catastrophize here, just a forewarning, but before we do that, before we start talking about how bad things could get, they could get really bad, to be clear, uh, much worse than they are currently, but before we start talking about that, I do want to give you a little bit of hopium, because there is a substantial amount of Russians on the ground in Russia who are speaking out against this imperialist war 
Max Seddon reports, some Russians are protesting Putin's attack on Ukraine despite a total ban on protesting and immediate heavy crackdowns from riot police. Here's a gathering of about 200 in St. Petersburg. Now, at the time that I record this video, about a thousand Russians who are protesting this war have been arrested. And I just want to put this into perspective for you. Russia is a brutally repressive authoritarian regime, so they know that speaking out and being against this imperialist war is going to lead to them being punished harshly, but they're doing it anyway, and that really is commendable. So good on them for protesting this. Let me show you a couple of uh, videos that have gone viral of people in various cities in Russia protesting this. Садите, пожалуйста, чуть подальше. А, скапливайте, садите. В курсе по статье 144 Good on them. I think that the world needs to send a unified message. This is not okay. Not okay. Imperialism is bad when any country does it. And this is an unjustifiable act of aggression that it is just, it has to be condemned. Um, now, let's catastrophize a little bit because something um, that Putin said should stand out to a lot of people. So um, he made a very disturbing threat as he announced his imperialist and illegal attack on Ukraine. So, quote, Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a speech announcing a military operation in Ukraine that countries that interfere with Russian actions will face, quote, consequences you have never seen the Associated Press reported. Now, pause. What do you think he means by that? The subtext is nuclear warfare. The implication is that I will use nuclear weapons if you intervene, if you put boots on the ground in Ukraine to try to fight off our aggression. Now, it's not just that the countries who he nukes, assuming he were to follow through on this threat, would be damaged. Using nuclear warfare would trigger a nuclear response. So, you know, this mutually assured destruction has been seen uh, for a while as a form of deterrence, because if one country uses nukes, the other is going to use nukes. So you both destroy each other. So there's no incentive to use nuclear weapons. But for Vladimir Putin to say that, understand what he's really telling you here. He's telling the world, I alone will choose to unilaterally end all life on the planet if you choose to get involved here and intervene. Because that's what would happen. If nuclear war uh, breaks out, that's not just going to be a war between two countries. That will ruin the planet. It's a very, very 
high likelihood that all life on Earth goes extinct, especially considering the way that nuclear war, uh, nuclear weapons rather, have evolved. So when we used nuclear weapons on Japan, the nuclear bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were 15 and 21 kilotons respectively, and this was catastrophic. But the nuclear bombs now are bigger and more powerful than what we dropped on Hiroshima. So the Russian SAR bomb is 50 megatons. So Earth almost certainly couldn't survive nuclear war. So whenever a leader starts making thinly veiled threats for nuclear war, they're telling you that unilaterally they're willing to end all life on the planet if you come at them. It is truly reckless and insane and people need to pay attention to this. Now, I want to put a cap on the catastrophizing because it doesn't seem like it's going to come to that at this moment. Things are changing very quickly. The situation is volatile, but Biden is seemingly not going to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. He is sending more U.S. troops to Europe and Germany in particular. But at this moment, it doesn't seem as if the Biden administration is going to directly confront Russia. But things can escalate and take a turn for the worst fast. So pay attention to that, because whenever we start seeing world leaders talk about uh, or hint at rather using nuclear bombs, they're saying they're going to end life on Earth. That's what that means. It's incredibly serious. That's not hyperbole. Now, I don't want us to start feeling sorry for ourselves and think about, you know, our own destruction and annihilation, because right now our sympathies have to lie with the Ukrainian people who are going to deal with one of the worst things that you can deal with as a human being. War is awful. It's the worst thing that somebody can probably go through. One of the worst things. And they're going to be dealing with this. I mean, how many Ukrainians will be displaced? How many currently are trying to flee? There are images of traffic jams all throughout Ukraine as they try to flee the country. And, you know, we have to be ready to accept Ukrainian refugees and do what we can to help these people whose lives have been affected by this senseless and aggressive war. But um, some people are trying to justify Russia's actions here, which is insane. You can't justify what's unjustifiable, but people are trying to do it imperialism is bad period I, I feel like this is easy right american imperialism is bad russian imperialism is bad so uh what i want to do is show you a couple of tweets from people who i think made really good points because now is not the time to both sides this situation or do whataboutism to justify putin's psychotic actions as leftists we have to condemn imperialism and this is an imperialist war. So as CJ Werleman puts it, Russia killed 2 million Afghans in the 1980s, killed 200,000 Chechens through 2005, invaded Georgia in 2008, annexed Crimea in 2014, killed thousands in Syria since 2015, invaded Ukraine in 2022. But somehow many can't speak to these facts without saying, what about America? And he's right about that. You don't have to do whataboutism. American imperialism is bad. Obviously, if you're a leftist, you should be against that. But that doesn't mean that, oh, well, my country does imperialism, so I can't speak out against other leaders doing imperialism. Citizens don't have much control of what their governments do nowadays, especially when it comes to authoritarian dictatorship. So, you know, the Russian people, their problem, many of them are watching in horror 
if not most of them, as their leader does the same thing. So that imperialism is bad. We can we can aggressively and unequivocally condemn that imperialism. That doesn't mean that we're endorsing U.S. imperialism. All imperialism is bad. And so the way that so many leftists are wavering and just incapable of condemning this imperialist act of aggression is mind-boggling to me. And some have tried to justify the situation by saying, well, you know, there's Nazis in Ukraine and the United States government armed Nazis. And these are facts that are undeniable, yes, but Vosh made a really important point about this. He said, man, I couldn't place that familiar feeling I get when Russian fascists use the existence of the Azov Battalion to justify the slaughter of Ukrainian civilians until I remembered how Israeli fascists use the existence of Hamas. And he's right. The existence of Nazis doesn't mean that every single person in that country should suffer as a result. It's just... I mean, we have Nazis in America. Is an invasion justified against us? Of course not. So, you know, we, we have to stop being so afraid to condemn what is very obviously egregious. This is um, a war that will cause inconceivable levels of death and destruction. And it's truly sad. My sympathies lie with the Ukrainian people here. This is all because of one individual, one crazy lunatic decided to uh do this and he's not just doing you know damage in ukraine causing death and destruction but now he's threatening the entire world disrupting global order and he knows that this is detrimental to his regime his economy is not going to survive this and if it does it'll be severely damaged i mean this is going to plunge them into a depression most likely at least that seems to be the case and he's doing it anyway so this is truly just madness. It's insane. And in no uncertain terms, we have to condemn this as leftists and not just as leftists, as human beings. War is terrible. We have to absolutely do everything in our power to avoid a direct confrontation with Russia because that wouldn't end well for the human species. But of course, we have to try to prevent Russia from doing this. We have to try to get them to pull back. And that means you, you sanction oligarchs and Russian banks and you try to put pressure on his regime to stop. I just, the whole situation is um, really depressing and I'll continue to follow this situation. I'm not really going to try to keep you updated. My goal isn't to kind of let you know moment to moment what's happening here just to kind of give you an overall sense of things to pay attention to. Uh, there are really great live streams currently uh, that you can watch. There are news broadcasts from journalists that are on the ground that you can watch right now. For me, as a political commentator, I, I can't really do much than uh, kind of echo the same sentiment that you're all feeling right now. Terror, confusion, fear, depression. I feel the same exact way. But I think that one thing that we can all agree on is that this imperialist war must be condemned. And Vladimir Putin is an absolute bloodthirsty psychopathic war criminal and this is not okay and anyone who's trying to justify this they are imperialists they are warmongers no different than the neoconservative war hawks in the united states like john bolton or george w bush want more visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on youtube means tv and facebook you can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, 
invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.